I think I spend a lot of time thinking about my childhood and I look around my apartment and I have so many things from my childhood, uh, even when it comes down to colors and textures, things I remember, like the color of the velvet inside my grandmother's silver chest. Like, why why is that even in my memory? But now that's the color of the chairs that I ordered for my dining room. And um, that those are things that bring comfort. And I think when you understand your attachment, you know, if I'm attached to Narnia or those, the secret garden, it's because I read it at a time where it did, it brought comfort to me. It made me feel um, maybe it did offer an escape from a time when my family was going through some hectic stuff. Um, So yeah, I think, I think pushing yourself because you want to grow and understanding that when you do interrogate yourself and your own desires, that's, an opportunity to learn and to continue growing. Um, and it's not just an excuse to punish yourself because enough people will punish you. The talk I gave this morning, you know, was something my sister has said, which was fairies are for white girls. And, you know, when someone says something like that to you as a child, you just think, I can't like fairies. <laughs> like who, who made that rule up? But you don't question who made that rule up. You just think, oh, that must be true. Therefore, I'm either trying to be a white girl or I'm not a very good black girl or I'm trying to take things that don't belong to me because they belong to someone else. Like, you know, to go for a decade of hiding the things that I love because my sister had said that to me, it's just, it's a shame, but at least now I can use it to talk to other people and to say that, you know, magic is for everyone. And that's something I don't want other kids to go through knowing that whatever trauma you experience, you have the ability to sort of make the passage smoother for, for someone else who's coming up behind you. That's important. Welcome back to Chalk and Ink, the podcast for teachers who write and writers who teach. I'm your host, Kate Narita, author of 100 Bugs Accounting Book and fourth grade teacher. Before I get into today's amazing interview with educator, author, and poet, Zeta Elliott, I want to announce that the person with the Twitter handle, Poppy Wrote Pete, won a signed copy of one of Marcy Flincham Atkins' fabulous books. Congrats to Poppy and many thanks to Marcy for her generosity. Speaking of generosity, today's guest, Zeta Elliott, will also be donating a signed copy of one of her phenomenal books to a podcast supporter, and she will be creating a writer's workshop video for Patreon supporters. Stay tuned to the end of the podcast to find out how to enter the giveaways. This episode is full of heart. Zeta talks about how magic is for everyone, questions why some books aren't reviewed, and shares a simple and flexible way to outline a novel. Let's get started. Welcome, Zeta. I am so excited to have you here today on Chalk and Ink. Thank you so much for joining us. Oh my goodness, it's my pleasure, Kate. Thanks for inviting me. Oh my gosh, I'm so excited. So could you please tell us a little bit about who you are as a writer and who you are as a teacher? Wow. Well, I will begin by saying that I am a better writer when I'm teaching and I'm a better teacher when I'm writing. And of course, as you and I were just discussing a moment ago, finding that balance is is the real challenge. And so I was a college professor for almost 10 years. And then I decided I wanted to write full time. So I quit my professor job in 2014. So now I'm about seven years out and I do miss teaching college students. I don't miss grading, <laughs> um, in particular when when certain things come up in the news, certainly last spring and summer when there were so many protests around police brutality, 
uh, I really wished I had a classroom. I wished I had a kind of instant forum where I could sort of become clearer on my own understanding of the topic by explaining it to students. Um, you know, they say, if you want to learn for life, teach. And I do sometimes worry that not having a full-time teaching job means I'm not learning as much as I used to, because I would certainly push myself uh, farther for my for the sake of my students than I perhaps would for myself. And, you know, you want to make sure you verified things and check multiple sources. And I don't think I necessarily do that for myself. That said, I now have the opportunity to do sort of, I call them like hit and run teaching workshops where I'm just in a school or in a teacher's PD or um, in a library, in a community setting for one hour. It's like, (laughs) what can I do in one hour? So that's a different kind of challenge And I find what I'm doing now mostly is sort of loosening people up and sort of making writing more accessible. I think one of the things I enjoyed about teaching literature was to talk about craft and to make sure students understood like the author made very deliberate decisions in this story. Let's take a look at those decisions. And I think what I'm doing now is trying to demystify writing because I think and the children's publishing industry doesn't help with this. I think they there's a perception that writing is something very specialized and you need an MFA and you need this and that. And unfortunately, I do have a PhD. And sometimes I think people assume that you need to have a graduate degree in order to write historical fiction or something. And I'm like, no, in fact, that made it actually harder to write. <laughs> I to off to get that theoretical scholarly voice out of my head. Um, but I think... Now doing these sort of brief one-time workshops, I don't get a chance to have a sustained relationship with students. I do miss that, but I do still find it very energizing to, um, like just this morning, to be talking to some education majors. And then my friend just sent me their responses that they had to submit and, you know, when when student was like, she's like Beyonce, you know, she's had to work hard for everything she needs. And somebody else was, you know, said, I don't like to read, but I see the connection now between not having books that reflect your culture and your identity. Um, and that that individual, that student wants to write a story about their family. So giving them some tips on that. Hopefully, I hope I'm still sowing seeds. You know, I hope that even if I only have limited exposure to students or to teachers or librarians or whomever I'm speaking to, I hope that I'm planting a seed and that somewhere down the road, even if I don't get to see it, it, it'll bloom. I think that's definitely true. And I want to dive into what you said about demystifying the writing process and making deliberate choices. Because in Dragons in a Bag and The Dragon Thief, you your characters are children of color and you talk about how you never saw yourself in fantasy books in other interviews that I've read with you about you. And I was hoping you could talk about that. Sure. Uh, you know, I think I think it would be almost impossible for me to be a writer if I wasn't constantly reflecting on my childhood. <laughs> and I think writing for children, I didn't set out to write for children, but I couldn't get my adult, my first adult novel published. And I, I've worked with kids for 30 years in after school programs and community centers. And, you know, I had to teach some kids how to write picture books. And so I started making some and I, I found it really therapeutic. Um, I think people, again, there are these perceptions that children's literature, A, that it's not political when it is, 
um, or B, that it's sort of light, L-I-T-E, like it's literature, but it's not really literature. It's just sort of fun. It's entertainment. And I don't think people really understand how many messages are embedded in children's literature. And so from a very early age, if you're fortunate enough to have someone reading to you from an early age, and I was because my parents are teachers, um, if you're consuming certain narratives that exclude you or misrepresent you or people like you, the way that we carry that weight inside of us and we're unaware of it. I mean, I, I was just telling the students this morning how much I love British culture. <laughs> like I watch so many British shows and I don't read as much British literature as I used to. But, you know, when I was a teenager, I was modeling myself after Charles Dickens. Charles yeah. Dickens. <laughs> it wasn't even the Brontes. And I had read the Brontes. I had read George Eliot. I had read all these women. And I was still like, I'm going to write like Charles Dickens. Um, and how hard it was to get that kind of template to shatter that template. Because every time I sat down to write, I was like, well, I can't just get straight to the point because Dickens would have you going around and around in circles. So, <laughs> you know, every essay I wrote, it was like the end of page two that my introduction ended and I got to my thesis statement. But my, my teachers were like, wow, you know, you're a really good writer. And so I thought, okay, I'm writing like Dickens. I'm a really good writer. And then I came to the United States and my African-American friend, Gabrielle Seville, read my work and she was like, your writing is so British. And it was clearly not a compliment. <laughs> and I was horrified. And I just thought, oh, no. And then I was like, I'm going to write like Alice Walker. So then I was trying, you know, to pattern myself off of someone else. So it took me, you know, quite a while to finally settle into a voice that felt authentic to me. And that meant it was going to have a bit of a British accent because I grew up reading British literature. And I grew up reading The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe, and The Phoenix, and The Carpet, and books that you know, did no favors for black children, but told really in compelling stories. So it's, it's been a process for me of sort of decentering whiteness, of making sure that I am writing something that feels true to me. Um, but I am also very intentional. And I think that comes from being a teacher because I'm, I'm always thinking, how will this book be taught to a child? And I sort of just assume that there's going to be an adult who will read along and say, let's talk about this point here, or let's talk about this point later when the book is over. I think, you know, I revisit the books that I, I read it and loved as a, as a child. And when I went back to Narnia and yeah. the secret garden, you know, those books are extremely problematic, <laughs> a lot of problems and probably should not be given to children without a whole lot of context. Um, but I, they made such an impression on my imagination. I think I'm always going to write about gardens and I'm always going to write about doors. I remember reading The Door and the Wall in the fifth grade. Like the fifth grade was a really pivotal year for me. And so I tend to, for the Dragon series, I'm kind of stuck in that. I started, I was eight when I started the fifth grade and then I turned nine at the end of October. And I think I'm sort of stuck in that moment. And when I write my sort of default age child is a fifth grader. <laughs> mm -hmm. And it's, it's, you know, it's a big moment. They're, they're still young and fairly innocent, but they're also knowledgeable and they know how to question the world around them. Uh, and for dragons in a bag, yeah, I just wanted a kid who was like really smart, but also sort of used to being underestimated and wanting to sort of test his own abilities, but feeling a little insecure and wanting some guidance. And he just lost his father and, yeah, I was definitely 
being very intentional about the names. I just had a, a parent send me a message on Instagram with a picture of her two kids who are named Vikram and Kavita, which is just <laughs> awesome. And she was like, my kids have never seen their names in a book. And to have both names together like this in a magical story that they love. So I I know what that's like to not not hear hear names that are like yours and to not see people who look like you and have, you know, my family, my parents divorced. I had step siblings and half siblings and grandmothers who weren't biologically related to me. And so to have a family like that in a book that that was important to me because I knew I wasn't the only one. No. And you don't just have diverse families in your books. You have characters who represent groups of people that are often overlooked by society. You have, uh, you know, one of the main characters in that series is someone who people think is homeless, you Mm -hmm. know, others view as homeless, but actually is a magical character, which reminds me of, you know, when you reach me. And then you have, um, you know, Vikram and Kavita's auntie, right, who's like shut off by herself in this room, who their mother like wants to get rid of, which I personally feel you know, is a problem in our society. Let's just, when people get past a certain age, let's just go put them in another building and forget about them, you know? And so, and then you have the magical portal in the second book where uh, the dragon thief is actually in a, like a smokestack in a factory that does not look, you know, appealing. So you're taking a lot of different stereotypes that we have in society and turning them upside down, you know, on their head for people. I'm trying to do that for sure. And I, you know, for the first two books that are set in Brooklyn, anyone who lives in uh, that part of Brooklyn is going to recognize the city. And I, almost all of my books are set in New York because I lived in New York for 20 years in Brooklyn specifically. Uh, I use Prospect Park a lot. I was just telling the students this morning how I used to read Ruth Chu and she was this Brooklyn author writing about Prospect Park. So I was in Toronto in Canada reading about Brooklyn before I ever got to Brooklyn you know, these, these books do plant seeds in us. Um, but yeah, addressing, addressing real issues. Like, you know, for some people, the convention within fantasy is that magic should take you somewhere else. And it should certainly take you away from the city because nothing good happens in the city, nothing magical. Uh, and that, you know, is making a statement about urban communities and urban kids and families and communities. And I just wasn't okay with that. I thought, you know, when I was a kid, reading these books, I absolutely wanted to go to a castle and going to a castle meant going to England. And then going to England meant being in an all white world, even though there have been black people in England for a very, very long time. Um, And so I wanted to, you know, use magic as a way to help kids look at the world, look at their world a little differently. So, you know, in Brooklyn, if you walk past Prospect Park, you probably are going to see a homeless person on the bench, um, housing, the housing crisis in New York City is intense. I was certainly feeling the pressure of gentrification. I chose to move. I had the privilege of choosing to move before I got priced out. Um, but if I, as a single, highly educated woman, can't afford Brooklyn, you know, what are all these families supposed to do? So the idea of having Jax and his mother facing eviction, not because they couldn't pay rent, but because their landlord is just jacking up the rent and trying to get them out of the building so he can bring in wealthier people. And to have my editor say, you know, we, we think that's too sad for kids. It's like, doesn't Harry Potter's parents get killed in the first chapter? Like, <laughs> I don't know. That doesn't feel too sad. And too sad for whom, right? It's not sad for kids who are facing housing insecurity. And now with the pandemic, we have even more families facing eviction. So 
I definitely feel like fantasy for me, I want my fantasy fiction to engage with the real world. I don't necessarily want to remove kids from it, though I just finished book four, The Enchanted Bridge, and that is set entirely in Palmyra in the realm of magic. So that is a little bit of escapism. Well, I can't wait. (laughs) So I want to say a couple things. So uh, in your book, Say Her Name, which I absolutely love. And of course, I can't find it, even though I've got multiple stickies in here that I was like frantically flipping through. But I love, I loved this book. I absolutely loved it. And, you know, you mentioned about people not thinking that cities are magical places. And you have the poem in there about you're writing about something and someone said, oh, you should write about something nice like trees. And then you're like, okay, well, let's write about the fact how there are no trees here. Could you talk about that poem? I just thought it was very powerful. Sure. So in Say Her Name, I was able to include um, four mentor poems and I wanted to include Gwendolyn Brooks's as well, Re Real Cool, but I couldn't afford it. Uh, but Nikki Giovanni very kindly gave us uh, permission to use her poem for Sandra which was one of my favorite poems. And I've always taught it and then come back to it again and again. I just think it's brilliant. And it was, I think it was in her first self-published book, like 1968. Uh, and yeah, it's that idea that how, how do you learn about poetry? Who taught you what a poem was? And for me, you know, it was reading Robert Frost (laughs) being chosen for an enrichment class. And then it turned out to be Robert Frost. And I wasn't interested in Robert Frost. And then I was told I had a bad attitude. And, you know, all of that could have turned me off of poetry for good. Um, And I I still don't primarily identify as a poet, even though this month I'm writing a poem a day just to to sort of get my my chops back. (laughs) Um, (laughs) But for Say Her Name, yeah, I absolutely, again, feel like, you know, Poetry is everywhere and poetry is for everyone. And if you read a poem and you don't like it, it's okay. (laughs) That doesn't mean poetry isn't for you. It means that poem isn't for you. And you can either, you know, sit with it, work with it a little, or you can move on to the next poem. And I think a lot of young people um, have been listening to hip hop and rap music for, you know, a long time. Uh, I come from uh, African-American and Caribbean folks. Obviously, I'm of African descent. So oral culture, orality is important uh, in our communities. And things are often not always written down, but are told, you know, stories and um, messages are passed along orally. And I wanted Say Her Name to reflect the young people that I was thinking about um, who are born in cities, who might spend their whole life in a city Uh, sometimes, you know, for, especially for young children in the city, you know, your block is kind of your world and your parents try to keep you close. And so you don't get off your block all that often unless someone takes you, but that doesn't mean that you can't mine the block for all the riches that it holds. Um, and I think for, um, Nikki Giovanni in that poem for Sandra, you know, she has this neighbor (laughs) who thinks she hates, like, and I get that all the time. You're so angry. And Black women in particular get that a lot. Uh, to be the angry Black woman is such a stereotype. But basically, if you complain about anything, somebody will try to shut you down by saying, you're so angry, I can't hear you right now. I'll talk to you when you're when you're less angry. But there are a lot of reasons to be super angry right now. Um, and Nikki Giovanni is sort of saying, you know, there's this perception that poetry is meant to be about nature. Yeah. Right. I wandered lonely as a cloud and I do love Wordsworth, but I remember <laughs> reading a book my last year of college, which was when I had my first black educator ever. 
and it was Jamaica Kincaid, and she was writing about her rage at having been forced to memorize a poem by Wordsworth about daffodils. And here she is growing up in Antigua in the Caribbean. She's never seen a freaking daffodil. <laughs> Why do I have to memorize this poem? And then she gets to New York and she sees a field of daffodils and she's like, seriously, like, this is what I was reading, reciting a poem about. Um, so Nikki Giovanni is touching on that, right? Like this idea that people will accept your poetry if it has a mild, gentle tone and if it's talking about the beauty of the turning leaves. And I do write a lot of poems about autumn and spring and I do, but the idea that it's poetry shouldn't be radical um, and that actually the act of writing is sort of an indulgence. Uh, you know, Audre Lorde has that famous line, poetry is not a luxury. Like if you think of poetry as something essential, then it's something we should be doing every day. And it's something that should be a part of everyone's life. And everyone should feel that they have access to poems and no one should be shamed because of what they're writing about. I remember telling a student, you know, what if I'm a black poet and I want to write poems about unicorns? And they just laughed. And I was like, I'm serious. Like, just because I'm a black poet doesn't mean I have to be, you know, holding up my fist all the time. I can if I want to do that. And I do think I'm addressing a lot of political stuff in my work. Um, but, you know, poems about trees are also political. They if are. You're making a decision, right, to focus on the natural world. Who has access to trees? Which is what Nikki Giovanni's trying to trying to point to in her poems. So I love that she ends it with, you know, maybe I should check my kerosene supply and clean my gun. You know, perhaps these are not poetic times at all. But of course, she's being somewhat ironic because she just wrote a poem and it's a fantastic <laughs> poem. And it's got so much in it to discuss. So she's definitely a mentor poet of mine. I think um, my friend sent me a postcard with a quote by Gwendolyn Brooks. And she said, I want to have poems that I could take into the housing projects, into the taverns, into the street, you know, I want to write something that can mean something to the most, to most everyday people. And I think that's the kind of poetry I write. I have friends who write far more sophisticated poetry. They're sort of poets, poets, and that's not, that's not who I am, but I'm okay with that. I think that's also important for young people is to know that a poem is accessible. And in Say Her Name, there are almost 50 poems. So if you don't like that one on that page, turn the page. <laughs> going and we have beautiful art by love is wise so that helps too you know the the art is gorgeous but the poems they're just they're they're stunning and you cover you know so many different topics that i think can speak to any any woman <laughs> so um i just think it's incredibly powerful and and i see pieces of your other work in there too like you know, if you had the for my people, that reminds me of the dragons in the bag and the dragon, right? Piece, right? Wanting to, you know, wanting to mother dragons. There's just so much really yeah. wonderful work in there. Yeah. And love is wise. The artwork's fantastic. Let's Thank talk you. about this right. <laughs> a place inside of me talking about a political poem. And I was reading in one of your interviews that it didn't start out to be about a community's response to a riot. So I was hoping you could talk about that. Yeah. Well, unfortunately, it has taken me a really long time to get published. So I have a whole bunch of material that I wrote in 2000, 2001, 2002. Uh, and that was one of those poems. And, you know, I had sent it out and sent it out and it got rejected. And then I finally got an agent who specialized in children's literature and she read it and thought it was too sad, <laughs> which I hear a oh. lot. Um, and then we had the 
dual shootings. It was Philando Castile and another man was shot, I think in Louisiana within a couple of days of each other. And she wrote me back and said, you know what? It's not too sad. Let's let's give it a try and sent it to only, I think three or four editors. uh, And we found Grace who loved it. And um, I do, I think it was one of those things where it was a moment and people were feeling very emotional uh, and feeling as though, well, they, for the first time, I think a lot of people in publishing were recognizing a, that they could make money off of those kinds of books and B that there was a, a gap in, yeah. in the market and that there was demand and that, um, they hadn't been addressing issues like police brutality effectively. It's something that's been talked about in African-American literature for adults forever. Uh, and even in some, uh, African-American young adult lit, but, uh, to have a picture book and ha- to have a poem. So when Grace first suggested that we have it be more narrative, um, cause I had thought of it just more like a calendar and you would have just beautiful, splashy, colorful illustrations for each emotion. Uh, and we agreed to do the narrative, but realized it was going to have to have a couple of stanzas moved around. And once we did that, it did read more like it was a story. Uh, or at least it supported the illustrations, which are telling a story. And Noah won the Calvacott honor. And I did predict that <laughs> as soon as I saw her artwork, I was like, oh my God, she's going to win a Calvacott <laughs> honor for sure. Uh, and you know, that book was not reviewed by Kirkus. It was not reviewed by School Library Journal. Like it's hard to, and for me to understand that in a moment where the whole world was protesting against police brutality, they could see a book like that and decide they didn't think it was worth reviewing. Um, but then Noah sort of vindicated us by getting the Caldecott. So, um, yeah, I think it's it's been useful for a lot of teachers who are doing social emotional learning um, and just helping kids to express their feelings and to know that it's okay if you're angry in one moment and sad the next and happy the next and you don't have to hide your emotions, especially for boys and boys of color. You know, it's okay to be vulnerable. Uh and when we let our feelings out, when we honor our feelings, that's actually when we have the chance to heal. And that's the goal. So. It's a beautiful book. It's stunning. I'm going to buy a copy for my classroom. So thank you well, for thank creating you. it. Yeah. And I think it's also for people who are interested in writing picture books, I do think it's a, a great study because the poem tells one story and the artwork tells a, a different story, you know, and they complement yeah. each other. But you really see how the two work so powerfully well together, the text and the pictures in that book. Yeah. I have to hats off to my editor, Grace Kendall, who, you know, had that vision and I was resistant at first, but, you know, we had a little trouble pinning down an illustrator, but we, we waited and nabbed Noah. Now she's <laughs> Now she's booked for the next five years, but uh, yeah, I would love to work with her again. I think she's brilliant. Well, I would love to see another book by the two of you. So you mentioned earlier that you feel like you're a better writer when you're teaching and you're a better teacher when you're writing. Could you talk a little bit more about that? I know you said that part of it is you feel like when you're teaching, you know, you double, triple, quadruple check your sources. What else plays into that for you? Yeah, I think it takes me outside of my head, you know, like Mm -hmm. sort of one of the only times I really feel embodied is when I'm teaching because I am, well, used to be before the pandemic, I would be standing in a classroom in front of students and then you're reading facial cues and, you know, people's posture is having an impact and you're managing, right? Like you're managing a space and you're 
creating an environment where people feel safe enough to share. Uh, and you're also creating a structure so that students know what to expect. Uh, my last teaching job was at a community college and that was the hardest teaching experience I've ever had. Um, and, you know, to have students come in and say, well, I don't read. And you're like, well, this is a 300 level literature class. So <laughs> you read 10 novels before you, you know, finish this class. Uh, so how do you, how do you make literature interesting to people who don't read recreationally? Um, it was humbling because I was like, well, I'm teaching at the college level and this is the college level. And I taught at Mount Holyoke and da, 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 da. Uh, and then just to, to acknowledge that, you know, there are students here who um, came in needing a lot of remedial classes and, you know, all of the students, none of them had any kind of student debt, which was amazing to me. But that meant that their families, you know, were at the poverty level. And so they qualified for the so-called free ride. But you only get that money if you go to school full time. And these are folks who work full time. Plus, they have kids and they're raising families. So it was like, how do I make a, a, a lesson that is relevant and interesting to them? Because they're only going to read this stuff that's interesting. And then recognizing that a lot of them needed read-alouds. And mm-hmm. really enjoyed read alouds and that their comprehension was a thousand times better if we read an essay out loud together and went through it paragraph by paragraph. Um, so yeah, I, I, I grew a lot as an educator, but it was also exhausting. And, you know, picture books, for me at least, are not very hard to write and I can write them rather quickly. Uh, but novels, you just sort of need that kind of immersion you need to be able to stop one thing and then sink back into the world of the book and i knew i wasn't going to be able to do that if i was teaching four classes in this in the fall and five classes in the spring it was just a ridiculous teaching load so before it it jumped i left and um yeah i think i think writing i am an introvert so writing i'm well suited to writing and I like to be alone and I like to be in my head. And if I go for a walk, I'm good being alone. I could spend like the pandemic, the quarantine that did not bother me. And I was really lucky that I, you know, could continue to work from home and, you know, could afford to have things delivered to me. Like it, it didn't change my life as much as it did other people's. Um, and I had been wanting to travel less and then I couldn't travel. So it was perfect. It gave me a a justification for staying at home. But I think teaching, it's an act of caring, right? Like it's an investment in other people. And I think not having that right now feels not so great. And I don't know if that's going to show up in my books. I think when kids always say, what's your favorite book that you've written? I don't have a favorite book, but I always tell them, I remember the conditions under which I wrote everything. And, you know, The Witch's Apprentice comes out in January. That's book three in the Dragon series. And that's going to be my pandemic novel. You know, um, writing that in isolation, largely in central partly in central Pennsylvania, and then moving to Chicago because that novel is set in Chicago and wanting to be able to visit some of the sites, but then to be in the city as it's shut down and sort of emptied out. How do I make that relevant in my book? Well, let's have a sleeping spell that only affects adults, right? Like how can I sort of reference what's happening in the world around me without triggering so many children because so many of them will have lost 
um, family members, community members, it's been a really scary time for kids. So wanting to write something that still shows love and affection and caring for the kids um, who read my books um, without having the same opportunity to be with them over a period of time. Like even all the Zooms I've been doing, you know, finally taking a break and saying, I'm not going to do any more, um, which was good for me in some ways. But then I miss engaging with kids. I miss the interaction because they energize me in a particular way. They exhaust me, <laughs> but they yeah, also yeah. right give me some some energy that I think carries, definitely carries over into my fiction. It has maybe a fun, more, more of a fun quality when I'm working with kids than when I'm sort of trying to remember what it's like to, to be in a classroom full of kids. No, it's true. I mean, teaching is really demanding and, you know, draining, but at the same time, it's also incredibly energizing and it, it fills me with hope. And that's an incredible gift every day. There's not a day that doesn't go by where someone says something that makes me think of the world in a different way or think of myself in a different way, think of what I need to change, what I need to do to be better. Um, it's just, you know, it's an incredible gift. And also, you know, they, they're they a huge support too. They they get behind you, you know, and that's something, yeah, it's it's such a gift in that way. So I can see how... I, I hear what you're saying. It is really different to write a novel than it is a picture book. And I can see that feeling like, okay, I want to be able to focus on the novel. And I can also see that feeling of, wait a minute, where are the kids? <laughs> Where'd they go? Right. You know? Strangely, kids get sort of really removed from the children's book production process. Like it's entirely staffed by adults who are making all these decisions on behalf of children. Um, and, you know, I, I find even among children's literature scholars, there are a number of them who don't particularly like children. <laughs> I think that can be true with people in publishing, too, maybe even in the teaching profession. Although I think if you're going to stick with it, you pretty much have to love kids. So, uh, yeah. So tell us about a breakthrough moment that you had in your writing. It sounds like with the teaching, it was learning how to use the oral you know, the oral part, whether it be recorded books or reading essays aloud, what, what would you say has been a breakthrough moment for you in your writing? Wow. Well, decolonizing my imagination, I wish I could say that was a moment, but it, it's an ongoing process. But finally realizing that I could do it, that I could sort of excavate and peel back the layers and get to a more authentic voice for myself. That was, that was key for me. But I think also my first sort of bout of reject, uh, rejection letters. Um, I had written a novel for adults and before it was even finished, I was getting a lot of interest from editors and agents. And I just thought, you know, checking my watch any day now, <laughs> get that big deal. And then I won't have to finish graduate school and I'll just, you know, be a writer. And, you know, six months went by of me back and forthing, back and forthing with editors and agents. And then there was nothing. And during that six months, I didn't write. That's probably oh, wow. this period in my life since I started writing that I, I stopped, you know, like submission, that's sort of like a part-time job in and of itself, researching and querying. And back then you were actually sending a manuscript through the mail. Um, and that was when I sort of pivoted and started writing for kids. So I think that was a big moment for me was accepting that, 
I needed to write and I was going to do that whether or not I had an agent and whether or not I ever got a six-figure deal and whether or not I ever won any awards, I still needed to write. And I had a lot more in me to come out. And uh, yeah, I did have a friend recently say like, you've got more than 40 books, isn't it enough? (laughs) And it's, you know, well, I don't even understand that question really, but I just (laughs) know maybe I haven't written my best story yet. Like maybe I have, maybe the second book was my best and I'm never going to top that. But, you know, for someone who has struggled so hard to even get a foot in the door in the publishing industry, um, I do feel ready to sort of step back from children's literature, but I wouldn't, I would never stop writing. And I think understanding how essential writing is for me, even in terms of mental health, helping me process the past and the present and to think about the future that was that was a breakthrough for me. I think. I want to dive into what you said a little bit, a uh, little bit more. You, you talked about it earlier. How first you were trying to write like Charles Dickens, and then you switched to uh, a, a female black author. So how how have you done that? Like how have you honed your voice? Uh, I think journaling certainly helps. I think. Often for writers, the first thing you write really sort of is your memoir, (laughs) a thinly veiled memoir, and you're just sort of getting some things off your chest that you maybe needed to. I mean, maybe not for everybody, but for me, certainly I had sort of a challenging childhood and teenage years and needed to express that somehow. Um, I think, you know, self-reflection is a big part of, of getting down to what it is you like and why and you know, part of it was compassion and being able to say, I do love England. (laughs) When I have extra money, I go to London twice a year. It's been hard. That's the only real trip I've missed making now that we can't travel as easily. Um, You know, sort of being kind to myself and saying, you know, these are the things you were exposed to and you were drawn to them and you're always going to have sort of a soft spot in your heart for them, but that doesn't mean you can't critique them because now you have the tools to critique them. And so sort of accepting that hybridity and saying, you know, I'll never get back to who I might've been if I hadn't read Dickens and Narnia and Brontes and all of that. Um, But I, as someone who writes historical fiction, you know, I can learn a lot from those writers and, I can think of ways to make the genre more inclusive. Um, Yeah, I think a lot of it has to do with compassion and self-awareness, questioning everything (laughs) all the time, which I know gets on some, some of my friends' nerves. But, you know, like, why do I do what I do? And why do I like what I like? And why are these the colors that I picked from my walls? And um, sort of constantly questioning yourself not to berate yourself or shame yourself or punish yourself, but just for the opportunity to know yourself better. I think I spend a lot of time thinking about my childhood and I look around my apartment and I have so many things from my childhood. Uh, Even when it comes down to colors and textures, things I remember like the color of the velvet inside my grandmother's silver chest. Like why, why is that even in my memory? But now that's the color of the chairs that I ordered for my dining room. And, um, that those are things that bring comfort. And I think when you understand your attachment, you know, if I'm attached to Narnia or those, the secret garden, it's because I read it at a time where it did, it brought comfort to me. It made me feel, um, maybe it did offer an escape from a time when my family was going through some hectic stuff. Um, 
So yeah, I think, I think pushing yourself because you want to grow and understanding that when you do interrogate yourself and your own desires, that's an opportunity to learn and to continue growing. Um, and it's not just an excuse to punish yourself because enough people will punish you. The talk I gave this morning, you know, was something my sister has said, which was fairies are for white girls. And, you know, when someone says something like that to you as a child, you just think, I can't like fairies. <laughs> like, who, who made that rule up? But you don't question who made that rule up. You just think, oh, that must be true. Therefore, I'm either trying to be a white girl or I'm not a very good black girl or I'm trying to take things that don't belong to me because they belong to someone else. Like, you know, to go for a decade of hiding the things that I love because my sister had said that to me. It's just, it's a shame. But at least now I can use it to talk to other people and to say that, you know, magic is for everyone. And that's something I don't want other kids to go through, knowing that whatever trauma you experience, you have the ability to sort of make the passage smoother for for someone else who's coming up behind you. That's important. It's a really powerful statement. Thank you so much for <laughs> for sharing that. So, how do you, you know, how do you balance everything? What is your what is your writing process like? What is your teaching process like? You know, you covered for someone's class today. So, what does that look like for you? Uh, it's fairly random. <laughs> that is another thing that I miss about teaching is having a set schedule because at least you know, even as a professor, I would teach maybe six hours a week, but then you have your office hours and then you have having an office. Oh my goodness. I miss having an office that I had to leave the house to go to and then come back. So uh, I spend a lot of time at home. Um, and I, I try to have a routine more than a schedule. Like um, I tend to go to bed at the same time and wake up at the same time. I think that's just who I am. Um, but yeah, I, I try to read half an hour every day. I, I, wear a, a pedometer. So I try to make sure I get my 10,000 steps in. I bought a treadmill during the pandemic so I could run inside without a mask on. Uh, I know certain things that I need to do just for my own mental health in terms of diet and exercise. And I'm an introvert. I do like being alone, but I know I need to go out and be with friends. So making um, a concerted effort to Zoom with people on a regular basis. We don't have a set date and time, but you know, at least every Every few weeks we catch up. Um, yeah, I think when I have a project, so I knew going into the summer of 2021 that I had to turn in the third dragon book on September 15th. And then in August, I found an apartment that I really liked and put an offer in on it. And so I said to my editor, I'm probably going to be moving in the next couple of weeks, which means I am not going to have this novel done on September 15th. Could I have October 15th? And she was like, sure, no problem. Um, and so then I knew that I needed to have about 15 to 20,000 words written by the end of August. And if I could do another 15,000 by the end of September, I'd be just about done this book. And I managed to do that. And when I know I have to do something like that, then I'm like, well, that means you have to write a thousand words a day. And so every day you have to write a thousand words. And if you have your outline, it's not hard because you're just following your outline. Um, but there are a lot of days where I wrote no words. <laughs> and again, <laughs> you sort of have to like not beat yourself up about it and just say, I'll try, you know, try to do better tomorrow. Or I, the number of times I would end up writing a thousand words at 1130 at night, you know, just trying to get it in in half an hour. It's like, well, 
why can't I write 5,000 words a day if it only takes me half an hour to write a thousand words? Um, so I, at this point, because I've written so many books, I'm over 40 books at this point, I trust myself and I trust my process, which is sort of a non-process. Um, but because I'm in, um, I always say that writing is 70% dreaming. So if I've had enough dreaming time to just sit with my characters and think about the plot and for a series, it's a bit more complicated because you have to think about continuity and knowing writing the third book, knowing that the fourth book also has to be turned in and then knowing there's a fifth book, but I don't have a contract for that yet. And so should I, um, yeah, just you, you have a whole bunch of other considerations. And then I had another book. So as soon as I turned in book four, I was like, whew, got that done. <laughs> like the next day, got an email from an editor for another book that's coming out next year, Moonwalking, to say, we need edits. Could, could we get this turned around in like four or five days? So wow. sometimes, yeah, sometimes it feels like it's never ending. Um, sometimes when you're in the in the thick of it, it's really exciting and energizing. And I think when I was finishing book three, I remember being so excited. I had to get up and walk around the apartment and then I was crying for a while. And then I sat down and started to write and I was crying a bit more. And then I finally, you know, knocked it out. And yeah, I think sort of trusting yourself if you have a writing practice, if you're, you've developed a practice and you know that you can, you can sit down and crank out a thousand words when you need to, and you get to that point by not expecting perfection, you know, sometimes it just needs to be done. <laughs> and that's what the editing process is for. I don't generally think of myself as having drafts. I try to polish as much as I can while I'm writing. Um, so when I do go back and read it, there isn't much that needs to be tweaked. Um, but you know, my editor's going to send me her notes probably in a couple of weeks and then it'll be another, can you give us a turnaround? And, and yeah, there's always something more that needs to be done, but that's sort of my writing non-process. I want to talk to you about your outlining. Cause I, I wrote a draft of a novel this summer with an outline for the first time Congrats. and a really detailed outline <laughs> uh, where, you know, I would have the inciting incident from the last chapter would, you know, tie into the exposition of the next chapter, the swing beats. I'm wondering what your outline looked like the summer when you were writing that book. Yeah. I mean, it's very basic. I, when I'm teaching fantasy fiction to kids, I always tell them, break down your story for me in 10 sentences. And then each of those 10 sentences becomes a chapter. And then we can fill in more details of what needs to happen in that chapter to get you to the next chapter. Uh, so I basically start with something very basic, like one or two sentences. This is what happens here. And then this is what happens. And then this is what happens. Uh, for The Witch's Apprentice, I think I started with 10 and realized many of my chapters were way too long. And so I just needed to break them. I didn't have to change the actual plotting, but just the length of the chapters was too long. So that ended up being, I think, 14 chapters. And then for the Enchanted Bridge, which I just turned in, um, I did have to make some changes. And I kept thinking, oh, I can do this in 10. I can do this in 10. And a matter of fact, it got to be October 15th. And I was like, hey, <laughs> Diane, my editor, I just need like a couple more days because I just have like maybe 2,000 more words and I'm writing 1,000 words a day. So I'm at 30 and I think I'm going to wrap up at 32, 32,000 words. 
And then I couldn't get to the end of the book. Like I was just like, why is this taking me so long? Like simply following my outline was not getting me to the finish line. And I realized that, um, you know, the book was going to be much longer. And so I think we wrapped up at like 45,000 words. Oh, wow. How did I completely underestimate, right, that I had so much more that had to be written before I could get to my designated finish line? Um, Yeah. So tell me your question again. (laughs) I have not answered it, which is entirely possible. Well, I was just really curious about your outlining process. So it sounds like you start off, if it's a 10-chapter book, with 10 sentences about what each chapter is going to be about. But then what you were just saying, it sounded like there were a lot more than 10 chapters. So then when you realized there were a lot more than 10 chapters, then did you repeat that outlining process? And were you like, okay, here's the next sentence for the next chapter? Or were you just free writing at that point? And at any time, do you ever add more to that outline? Or does it always just stay like one sentence per chapter? No, it's a real shame because a friend of mine was talking about archives. And I was like, you know what? I'm not going to have anything to contribute to an archive because everything is on my computer and I just overwrite everything. So, excuse me, I always start, I have the manuscript and then I have another document that is notes and then I have another document that's the table of contents. And so I do my outline, my 10 points, and then I cut and paste each of those chapter blurbs sort of and put them into the manuscript. So chapter one, here's what you need to write. Chapter two, here's what you need to write. And then I I let myself jump around. So I think I might've written like the last chapter, a third of the way through the book. Like I just jumped to the end because I had to hit a thousand words and I was like, okay, I'm not getting it here. And let me just jump ahead and write something else. And then I'll go back and look at my table of contents and be like, you know what? That's not one chapter. That's two. Let's split that. And then as I'm writing it, I'll be like, you know what? You didn't even cover the things that you said you were going to cover. So you have to add another chapter here. And then getting to the end of the book and realizing, well, you had this whole section with Kenny and now Kenny didn't have that part. So that needs to go in book five. So then I opened the book five document. Here's the manuscript. Here's the, here's the notes. Here's the table of contents for book five. And I just start, you know, sort of cutting and pasting things there. So I definitely revise my table of contents a lot, my outline, and I reprint it. So every time I finish a chapter, there's a big check mark. <laughs> Like one, two, three, four, five, not six, not seven, eight, nine, not 10, not 11. Um, and I'll just keep printing it as I'm changing it so that I know what I have done and what I haven't done. I think it's really important for me to see those check marks to be like, look, you've written eight chapters. You still have five to go, but you've written eight chapters. You can do it. That's really fascinating. And that you don't write them in order. You jump around to wherever you feel like you can work that day to be most productive. I mean, that's a great freedom to give yourself. It is because there are a lot of times when even if you know what you're supposed to write, sometimes it's just tedious or you haven't worked out where the characters, something around the uh, world building or some aspect and just be like, you know what, I'm going to highlight this, like finish this later. (laughs) And then I'm going to jump down or skip that or... Yeah, it does help. I mean, you do have to be open to cutting so that by the time I got to that last chapter, I was like, oh, I actually can't use that because now I've changed things in the previous chapters. I'm going to have to, instead of reworking it, I just cut it all together. But um, yeah, I think anything that helps you maintain momentum, for me at least with a novel, is a good thing. And if you get stalled at chapter four 
and then just force yourself to sit there and, you know, grapple with chapter four, you may end up getting turned off the whole book altogether. So it is, I, I do think that giving yourself permission to just write something, <laughs> write something, as long as it's connected to the book, write it. And that counts. That's great advice. Thank you so much for sharing that. So um, I know that you said you have, I read about this, read about this in your book center interview that, and you mentioned it already today while we were talking, how you have the find your voice PDF that's available for educators. And so that ties into my question. What advice do you have for teachers, you know, who want to write, who aren't writing? Yeah, I think the first thing is to develop a writing practice. Um, You know, writing can be intimidating because a lot of people imagine, I think we still have this idea of a writer, you know, huddling in a cold attic, typing away. (laughs) So people do associate writing with suffering. And I think, you know, writing should be fun. And and you're, for me personally, it's like with exercise, I'm not going to do anything that I don't enjoy on a regular basis. I'm just not. So I try to pick things that I enjoy and pick things, you know, like I love to walk. <laughs> I don't need special equipment for that. And, you know, today it's not the best weather, but I could still get out and get a walk in today. Um, yeah, I think... I don't know... What's some of the exercises that you have in that, in the PDF, the find your voice? I think before I did find your voice, I did everyone has a story to tell. And I regularly get teachers asking me for lesson plans. (laughs) You know, when I'm self-publishing a book, I can include a study guide. I always do a study guide, but I can't develop actual lesson plans. But I was for a long time, I made more money doing Uh, school visits and teacher trainings than I did from royalties. So I did have a whole bunch of activities and lessons that I was using workshops. So I thought, you know what, I'll put it in a book and then I'll put it out there. And then teachers, you know, if you want to teach a fantasy fiction unit, here are 12 lessons on how to do, how to write fantasy fiction. Um, And teachers were not using it at all. And then I just thought, what if, what if it's something else? Like what if there's a mental block around writing itself and having done a number of PDs with teachers and librarians, I was often surprised by how many of them were um, tentative or straight out afraid of writing. Um, And then once we got started, they were warmed up and they were laughing and everybody was sharing. And, and I just thought, you know, this is what your classroom should be like, but, um, if you have resistance within yourself or if you have discomfort or doubt, you know, we have to do something about that. So I think I have very sort of simple writing prompts. I use word association, like literally write one word on the board and give people 60 seconds to throw out as many words as they can that they connect with that word. Um, I think writing should be considered an everyday activity. You know, I don't think it has to be this big momentous special occasion that only certain people can do. Uh, and if you do have a writing practice, then you, you know, you'd basically just decide for 15 minutes every day, I'm going to write. And maybe it's just a journal. Maybe I'm going to write a poem. Maybe I'm going to describe the room I'm sitting in or the view out the window It can be anything, but once you develop a practice, then you start to trust yourself and you've created what my friend calls sacred writing time. So she's, she's a scholar and she's working on scholarly books, but you know, I think the same 
principle applies that this is time for me to do something that's valuable. And I know that can be hard when you have kids and you're sharing space with other people. Uh, but you know, sometimes ritual helps us also to develop a practice. So when I was writing my first novel in my sister's apartment, I would borrow her lipstick <laughs> and I would put on this red lipstick and I never wear lipstick, certainly not red. Um, <laughs> and then it would sort of feel like my uniform, like, okay, I have now transformed into the writer and now I'm going to sit and write. And I have music that I listen to when I'm writing and certain snacks that I like when I'm writing. So I think trying to make it as enjoyable and stress-free as possible is really important. And um, I think teachers, you know, you should share that in your classroom that, you know, writing makes me nervous. Um, I wasn't sure I knew how to write a poem. I wasn't sure my poem was good enough because your students are having some of these same thoughts too, probably. And it, and I think it always helps to say, this is how I'm learning how to do something new. Uh, so yeah, that's what I hope for, for teachers. And I hope find your voice. If anyone wants a copy, just email me. Um, I hope that sort of gives teachers some confidence and also some suggestions on ways they can introduce writing in their lives and in their classrooms. Well, thank you so much for creating that incredible resource. So you've talked about word association. You've talked about for fantasy, write down 10 sentences and then have the kids go and fill it in. Is there another writing exercise that you'd like to share with listeners that they might want to try in their own classroom? You know, some of the easiest poems to write are list poems, like literally just make a list. Um, <laughs> I remember when my a friend of mine from college took her own life and that was the first thing I did was make a list of all the things I remembered about her. And it was only three years after graduation, but I, I was really like racking my brain. It's like, oh, she loved freshwater pearls and she loved um, this particular perfume and she loved uh, paintings by um, Gauguin. Like I just made a list of all those things. And, you know, I came across that list just a few years ago and I didn't remember most of it, most of those things about her. So I was really glad I had documented it. Um, for the pandemic, you know, one of the poems in Say Her Name is just two lists. Here's a good day for me in the pandemic. And here's a not so good day. <laughs> Some days I'm eating cupcakes and ordering pizza and eating <laughs> ice cream and sitting on the couch in my hoodie. And, you know, and then there's the day I get out and I go for a walk and I take, you know, I have a salad and I take a picture of myself. So you can really just break it down. You know, um, one of the prompts word association I did was USA. What comes to your mind when you're thinking about, you know, this country and then make a list of, you know, things that you think we need to work on and things that make you really proud. And once you have those lists, it's not that hard to add one or two words and turn that into a poem. Um, you know, poetry is really about intention. It's not so much about form. And I think people get hung up on, well, how am I going to write a sonnet? And I'm like, yeah, I don't know how to write a sonnet. Like I had to look that up in order to write sonnets for say her name. And I probably won't write any more sonnets. I don't, I don't find it an easy form. And I don't want to have to think that hard about how I'm trying to say something. I want to focus on what I'm saying. So free verse poetry is really freeing. Just, you know, just write whatever's on your mind. You can write a paragraph. If, if, if that's your prose poem, that's your prose poem. You call it a poem because you meant it to be a poem. And then it is. And nobody gets to say otherwise. I love that. And I love how you're mentioning the compare contrast structure with those lists, you know, good day in the pandemic, a bad day in the pandemic. What's good about the United States? What do we need to work on? You know, I think that that's mm -hmm. a really powerful form for students as well. 
um, to think about it like that, it, I think it's a little bit more freeing in terms of I have to think about it one way, right? It's it's increasing your mental flexibility. And it could be more than, it could be somewhere in between too, right? It could be a Venn diagram. So that's Absolutely. that's really fascinating. Absolutely. Yeah. There are so many possibilities. I think whenever I give students a prompt and I'm doing a 45-minute writing workshop, there's always two or three kids students who do something completely different. And that's fantastic. It's like, you know what, if you found inspiration and went in that direction, that's okay too. I think for me in the poetry classroom, everything's okay. (laughs) Yeah. Everything's okay. Well, I have to say, I just learned last night that my friend's daughter um, is no longer with us. And I will remember that list poem idea for myself. So thank you very much for sharing that. Yeah. I hope it helps. It's It's important to memorialize the people we've lost. Yeah. Thank you so much. So segueing here. (laughs) So just for fun, what are some books that you think should be in classrooms that you haven't written other than, you know, your fabulous, you know, a place inside of me and your dragons in a bag and the dragon thief? What are some books that you would like listeners to know about? It's so hard. I get asked these questions all the time. And the truth is I don't read children's literature. (laughs) (laughs) I read some YA, I read yep. some young adult, and I read some middle grade. I have to say I really loved Anne Claire Lazat's book, Show Me a Sign. That was fantastic. Yeah. I love that book. It's yeah. amazing. I've got the sequel here with me. Um, so I really enjoyed that book. But I don't often read middle grade, and I, I almost never read picture books. So it's I got asked that this morning as well, what, what books elementary teachers should have in the classroom. Uh, I think just... A, a, Instead of giving specific titles, I'll just say, you know, try to make sure you have as many um, mirror books as possible, right? Think about the kids who are in your class who maybe haven't seen themselves and make sure they're they're being seen in a range of ways. We talked about the liver, liver and Brussels sprouts books and how some of the teachers, you know, grew up only reading, seeing themselves when it was a nonfiction book about Rosa Parks or Dr. King and you know, everybody wants a magical story and everybody wants oh, a scary story. and Everybody wants a funny or a romance. So trying to have uh, as wide a range of stories as possible. And, and even, you know, books are also windows. And so if there are kids in your class, you know, aren't kids in your class who are dealing with homelessness, you still need to have those books in the classroom. So it's sort of I think teachers, it's a great idea to do an audit of your classroom library, but also just look in your community. Just look around and see who who are the members of your community that you don't see represented and try to make sure that those books exist because we're trying to prepare our kids to live in a global society. uh, And if they, you know, don't see a range of people in their community, which they might not because our communities are still fairly segregated, um, you know, then it's important a book might be their introduction to someone different. And that could be a chance to develop empathy and interest, curiosity. It really is. I live and teach in two very segregated communities and, and it's interesting. I'm a fourth grade teacher. And at the beginning of the year, the students, for the most part, really have not been exposed to different to differences in, in any way, for the most part. And there's this, we do this assessment, this reading assessment, this vast reading assessment. And I stopped going to this book, which was about a boy who's homeless and living in a van in the fall, because 
the kids could never comprehend it. And then it was interesting because January would happen. And I'm not sure what happens developmentally in January or if it's just because, you know, all the teaching that I'm doing through the fall. I don't know, probably some combination of both. But then in January, I give them the same story and they're able to talk about it and understand it in a way they weren't able to before. And it's always, Mm -hmm. it's, oh, it's magical to me to see that, to see that shift. And, um, I don't know. I just think it's really important, no matter what community uh, one teaches in, to have a wide variety of literature in the classroom, whether it's to see yourself or see people that are different from you. And also, um, you know, there's always going to be a couple kids who don't come from that majority background, whatever that is. So last year I had a student and she had two older siblings and her sister was getting married to a woman. And so she said, oh, my sister's getting married to whoever, whatever the person's name was. And another little girl was like, what? You know, women don't marry, women don't marry women, you know? And, and my other student was like, women can marry whoever they want to marry. And I was like, okay. And so then I, I put my books by Rob Sanders. I put them in the front of the book baskets the next day, like just so that they were there. So people could just know that they're there. Like, okay, these these families that you're talking about, I have them represented in the literature and they're right here in case right. you want to see them. So um, I think it's also a mistake to think, oh, these families aren't represented in my community because the difference is there whether or not we see it or we know of it. And it's just a matter of getting to know our students. And so I think that that is often a mistake that teachers make is they think, oh, I don't need to have those books in my classroom because I don't have those students in my classroom, whatever those means, whatever that idea is. It's not true (laughs) because we don't know everything that's going on in our students' lives and we don't know all the people who are in their lives. And so no matter whether or not people think their books reflect the people in their classroom, we need to have everyone reflected in every classroom library because we simply don't know who is in a child's life and who is not. Absolutely. And then those books prepare students for when they do encounter someone who's different from them or someone that they haven't seen before. And they are going to encounter those people. It's going to happen if they haven't already. So, yeah. So um, what has been bringing you joy lately? Oh, always sugar, sadly. (laughs) (laughs) Eating way too much sugar. Um, So I live in Hyde Park. And even before I moved here, I was in Pennsylvania and I was thinking about how I was going to write The Witch's Apprentice in Chicago when I didn't live in Chicago. And I looked on the map and saw the Garden of the Phoenix. And I thought, ooh, I'm definitely going to put that in my book. It turns out it's literally like a 15 minute walk from where I live. So Before I moved here, I was living in Evanston, just north of Chicago, and uh, I took a lift, came into the city, went to the Garden of the Phoenix. It's this beautiful Japanese garden, Uh, and Chicago was built on a marsh, so uh, we have wonderful parks and wetlands, and there are blue herons that um, just are so completely unbothered by human beings (laughs) because they're in this Japanese garden like They will come into the garden, into the pond, instead of fishing in the larger lagoon. So my friend and I were just like crossing the stone bridge across the little trickling stream. And she was like, look. 
And we just turned and like two or three feet away from us was a blue heron fishing. (laughs) And now I find I go there maybe twice a week and I have what I call my friend. It could be a different bird. I have no idea. (laughs) But, you know, sometimes I'll just sit there and if I'm sitting very quietly, they'll come over, look at me, fish for a while, catch a few small silver fish, look at me. Um, Yeah, I sort of feel like they're friends. And so that makes me really happy. And, you know, Chicago has a serious problem with gun violence. And we just had a shooting in my neighborhood a couple of days ago. So it's also a really nice sort of sanctuary to slip into a wetlands with beautiful changing leaves. And um, yeah, it's a really serene sort of place that brings me a lot of joy. Well, I grew up in the south suburb of Chicago, and I've never been to the Garden of Phoenix. So I will have to put that on my list. I'm coming in for that. Yeah, Yeah. I'm coming in for that funeral I mentioned earlier. So yeah, yeah, I don't know that I'll be able to to get there that day, but I'll definitely put it on there. So it's interesting, uh, Blue Heron. So where I live, I live um, surrounded by the state park, and there's a pond. And not recently, but we've had Blue Herons there before, and they are so magical. They are just beautiful creatures. And seeing them fly... They've got such a distinct form when they fly. It's so gorgeous. I heard one make a call for the first time the other day. And I was like, wait a minute. Did that come from the heron? Is that what (laughs) it sounded like? And there was one just sitting, looking at me, not unbothered. And then another one called and circled and flew down around. And I was like, I've got two. (laughs) It's amazing. There was actually a study that said, you know, hearing the sound of birds actually makes people happier. And I have a big sort of, garden in front of my building complex with lots of big old trees and there are so many birds so birds may and I have a suet cage on the back deck so <laughs> had a downy woodpecker there last week yeah it's, it's really nice well I know we're going to wrap up but just since you mentioned birds I did also oh, read God. the ship of souls so students <laughs> would say that they're like are you obsessed with birds just like, is a little bit strong I'm close <laughs> Fascinated. I'll put it that way. I'm fascinated. Yeah. Well, thank you so much for your time. This has been such a pleasure. I'm so grateful. And thank you for the wonderful work that you are creating for kids. I really just am so excited to bring it into my classroom. Wow. Thank you so much. And thank you for doing a podcast on top of being a writer and a teacher. I don't know where you find the time, but it's been a real pleasure talking to you today. All right. Well, thank you so much, Zeta. Good luck and enjoy the Garden of the Phoenix. Thank you. All right. Take care. You too. Okay. Thanks so much for listening to Chalk and Ink. It's homework time. If you're looking for an irreverent Christmas book, check out Erin Dealey's Deck the Walls. If you're in need of a hug, get snug and cozy with snow globe wishes. If you're already looking toward the new year and wondering how you can become an environmental steward, peruse Dear Earth. Zeta Elliott generously donated a signed book to a podcast listener. There are several ways to enter. Tweet or retweet this episode, and be sure to tag me and Zeta. Go to www.katerina.com slash podcast and make a comment on this episode's post. Three, make a comment about the episode on our Chalk and Ink Facebook page. Or four, become a Chalk and Ink Patreon supporter. Patreon supporters are automatically entered into each giveaway. In order to enter the giveaway, these actions must be completed by midnight on Friday, December 31st. The winner will be announced on Friday, January 7th on the podcast, as well as on Twitter and on our Facebook page. Want to give me a holiday gift? Please leave a review wherever you listen to your podcasts. 
Reviews are gifts for other people too, because reviews help others discover this podcast too. Finally, I want to give a shout out to Sarah Brandon for Chalk and Ink's podcast art. Sarah's latest book, Uncle Bobby's Wedding, earned a starred review from Kirkus. I look forward to chatting with you again soon. Happy holidays, everyone.